0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator
1: for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Masner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Grace. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this program is done in collaboration with the CLL Society, and we're delighted to be working with them on this program. Every program that we do on CLL, we always partner with the CLL Society. We've been doing this now for a couple of years, and um, it's been a wonderful partnership. And you'll be hearing more from Patty Kaufman, in a little while um, about all the different resources of the CL Society. Now, today's program is titled Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, What's New? It's part one of Living with Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia. That means there's a part two next week, next Thursday. And um, today's program is supported by by Jen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pharmacyclics, LLC, and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. So I really want to thank them for their support of this program today and for their support of many of the programs that we offer. So I want to thank them. Now I just want to kind of let you know about who's on the call today. We have over 251 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, to different regions of the country. And our speakers also come from different parts of the country as well, so that might be nice for you to know as well. Um, And um, we also have international participants today um, from uh, Canada, Denmark, Norway, Poland, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. It's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now before I introduce our first speaker, I would like to ask you just a few questions really to get a sense of what you know before the program starts it really helps us um, to better plan programs in 2022 to know this information so i'm going to start with the first question and for those of you who are live streaming the program you'll be able to rate the questions you'll be able to hear me ask all of you can hear me ask the questions but those of you who are live streaming will be able to rate the questions see the questions and so and we very much look forward to your um to your responding to them Um, And and thank you for doing this. So um, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current treatment options for chronic lymphocytic leukemia in the context of COVID-19 and Syrians. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand updates and new and emerging treatment approaches for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand how research increases treatment options for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and quality of life concerns of chronic lymphocytic leukemia or CLL. One is the highest rating, and 5 the lowest rating. And then this is the last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. What is the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating. I very much would like to thank all of you for participating in the polling and now we're going to move on. I'm going to int- and I'm going to um, introduce our first speaker. And, uh, and it's my pleasure to do so, um, Dr. Adam Katai. And Dr. Katai is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And Dr. Katai will be addressing update on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, in the context of COVID-19 and experience, current treatment options for CLL, and new and emerging treatment approaches for CLL. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kote. Hey,
2: everybody. Thanks for having me here today. Excited to talk with you all. So the first topic that I'm going to cover is um, update on CLL in the context of COVID-19. This topic is rapidly changing, and it's really tough to keep abreast about what's going on with everything in regards to this. I'll start off by talking a little bit about masks. Um, I know a lot of my patients come in being very anxious about the country lifting the mask magnates and what they should do and some advice I can give them. One thing to remember is that if you have an N95 mask, it works to protect you from the virus. So, for example, when we see patients with COVID-19 in the hospital, we wear an N95 to protect ourselves. So, if you do feel uncomfortable in this situation, wearing an N95 mask will protect yourself. My other thought is that if you are outside, you should feel safe not wearing a mask, especially if everyone around you is vaccinated. There's a very low likelihood of getting COVID-19 when you mingle outside with other people in a not-crowded space. Overall, as mask mandates are lifted throughout the country, it'll be your choice whether or not you want to wear a surgical mask. Um, And ultimately, you're going to have to weigh your personal acceptance of some risk if you decide not to wear one. Surgical masks likely do provide some benefit and protection to you, but not as much as a well-fitted KN95 or N95. In general, I'm not recommending any type of cloth mask at this time. Um, And the reason why my patients are anxious is because we know that patients with CLL who get COVID generally may not do as well as healthy patients because your immune system is affected by the CLL. That's why we're recommending that all of our patients get vaccinated. So in terms of vaccinations for CLL, there's been a lot of confusion. Right now, for anyone who is not vaccinated, we are recommending one of the mRNA vaccines, either Pfizer or Moderna. There's some evidence that Moderna might work a little better than Pfizer for patients with hematologic malignancies, but the evidence is not strong. In general, the primary series is three shots given one month apart, and then a booster is given three months later. So remember, if you get one of the mRNA vaccines, it's four shots total, three for the primary series, and then a booster given three shots three months later. For patients who receive the J&J vaccine, we are now recommending an additional mRNA vaccine one month after the J&J vaccine, plus an additional booster shot two months after the mRNA vaccine. So if you got the J&J vaccine, we recommend two additional mRNA vaccine shots for three shots total. So some patients often get concerned about the time in shots. Should I get it three months, four months? What happens if I waited six months because of all these different changes in the time frame to get shots? In general, I tell my patients not worry, but to not worry about it and just focus on getting the number of shots that are currently recommended. Once again, that's four shots for the mRNA vaccines and three shots total for the J&J vaccine with the J&J first and then two additional mRNA shots afterwards. In terms of response to the vaccine, we are finding that patients who are on treatment or who are previously treated typically have lower responses to the vaccine than patients who are not treated. What we don't know and what we are still waiting on are clinical outcomes of patients who, A, get the vaccine versus those who don't, and B, patients who responded versus those who don't. There is some encouraging new data that does show that patients who did not respond to the first two doses of vaccine with CLL do respond to the third dose. So my ultimate recommendation is to get vaccinated and get all of the doses recommended that I I went through just now. There is also some exciting new treatments for COVID that we are hopeful will help our patients with CLL specifically. This is also a very rapidly changing topic, so I'm going to focus on what is available now, uh, but you should talk to your local providers uh, as this will differ across the United States. I'm going to focus on outpatient treatment, not inpatient treatment for CLL, for, for COVID-19 in, the, in, in this talk. So first, we have pre-exposure prophylaxis. This is before you even get COVID. The drug is called Evusheld. I really like the name. It sounds like Shield, but it's Evusheld, And it's actually two medications that are monoclonal antibodies against the spike protein of COVID-19 that are given together. This might sound familiar to some of you as monoclonal antibodies are frequently used to treat CLL. This is a similar medication that is targeted against the spike protein of the COVID-19. So far, we know that these medications given one time last for about six months, but it might be longer. We have to follow up data that is not yet reported. Um, In the study that led to the approval of this drug, it led to a reduction in COVID-positive symptomatic illness, it's a relatively safe medication where there was a small increase in heart events in patients with previous heart history. Once again, talk to your provider to see if you are eligible for this medication. In terms of treating active COVID, there are three medications currently available. Uh, there is sotrovimab, which is an antibody infusion against COVID, as well as Paxlovid and molnupiravir, which are both antiviral pills. Where, where I work at OSU, our infectious disease department looks at each individual case and decides which drug to prescribe based off of drug availability. So, once again, which drug you might get closer to where you live depends on the availability at the institute you see your provider at. We don't know which one works best, and they have to be given within five days of symptoms. So, make sure you call your provider as soon as you feel ill. A lot of these all of these treatments decrease all of these treatments decrease the risk of patients getting severe COVID once infected. Just to note, PAXlobid specifically does interact with a acalabrutinib, and venetoclax, some of our frequently used medications to treat CLL. So once again, if you are taking one of these medications and you get prescribed by Pex, Pex, pre- prescribed Pexlovid by a primary care doctor, you should talk to your hematologist oncologist about what you should do with your medication. In terms of how our patients are doing who have CLL and get COVID, we don't have recent data, um, especially in the setting of the recent Omicron wave. However, in a recently published paper by Dr. Roker at Sloan Kettering, um, there was some evidence that showed that our patients are actually doing better with our novel therapies, or at least as we get used to treating COVID in our patients. So I'm hopeful that with some of the medications that I talked about, vaccines and the pre exposure prophylaxis, our patients will be doing better if COVID if they get COVID with CLL. So moving on from COVID, as we are all hopeful that uh, we won't see another wave for some time or ever, let's focus our treatment on current. Or let's talk, focus our talk on the current treatment options for CLL and emerging therapies. I want to highlight once again that treatment is indicated when certain indications are met. So we don't treat when we first diagnose CLL. Usually patients are on watch and wait for some time before a treatment indication is met. So the treatment indications are a low hemoglobin less than 10, platelet less than 100, large or symptomatic spendomegaly, as well as large lymph nodes that are usually greater than 10 centimeters, um, and also symptoms such as fatigue, unexplained fevers, chills, weight loss, or night sweats. Typically, these symptoms and these laboratory and lymph node splenomegaly findings get worse over time um, until you require treatment. So how do I decide what treatment to pick for my patients? I like to think that there is a great treatment for every individual patient. When picking treatments in the time of COVID, um, it is still unclear how our treatments will affect the risk of getting COVID. But as stated earlier, we do know that some that our treatments do affect vaccine efficacy. So there may be a rule to delay treatment until you are fully vaccinated. Once again, you need to talk to your provider if treatment is indicated and you are not vaccinated. In general, with some exceptions, I don't consider COVID-19 when deciding what treatment is best for my patient. I approach treatment choice the way I I did pre-pandemic. That being said, each of us likely has a different opinion on this, and you should talk about this with your provider. There are currently three pills approved for the frontline treatment of CLL. I'm not going to be talking about chemoimmunotherapy today, um, and we will focus on these three pills that really have revolutionized the way we treat CLL in the last 10 years. These three pills are ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and venetoclax. They've never been compared head-to-head in the frontline setting, although ibrutinib was compared to acalabrutinib in the second-line setting and was found to be equal in terms of efficacy, with acalabrutinib being superior in terms of its safety. I typically decide which to be used based off of side effects and which side effects may be worse for certain patients with certain problems. Specifically, I pay close close attention to patients' age, heart disease, disease burden, and if there is any evidence of kidney um, failure. Ibrutinib is the first pill to be approved for the treatment of CLL and thus has the longest track record of success and is the, the one we are most familiar with. The take-home point for abrutinib is we know it works, we know it works for a long time, and we know the side effect profile very well. It's given once per day, and we give it until the disease stops responding to the treatment or if toxicity occurs. The toxicity of this medication is typically joint pains, easy bruising and bleeding, high blood pressure, and a normal rhythm of your heart. Acalabrutinib is also a pill. It works the same as abrutinib and is better tolerated. It's given twice per day, and we give it until the disease no longer responds to the medication like abrutinib the main side effect of a calibrinib is headache in the first two months. Bruising bleeding like a brutinib can occur, high blood pressure can also occur, but they are less likely than a brutinib. Lastly is venoclax. Also a pill, but it's only taken one year as a, for one year, as opposed to the ibrutinib and a which you take until the disease progresses. But there are some disadvantages. We pair it with an infusion of an antibody called obinutuzumab, which you get for the first six months. Patients might need to be hospitalized twice during the first month of treatment based on how much CLL disease burden they have, and it also may be a little harder to take than the ibrutinib acalabrutinib, as patients complain about diarrhea and can get low cell counts, which need to be monitored closely. The take-home point for venetoclax is that the big advantage is it is only taken for one year, but it can be harder for one year and requires close monitoring in the first two months of implementation. If the disease worsens after receiving one of the three medications above, we switch to one of the other medications, and this is how we typically treat CLL for the first and second time. I want to highlight that all of these medications are great, and even though there can be side effects the list and the list is wrong, they are typically very well tolerated. I advise my patients to give the medication a shot, and we can always stop or switch to something that makes them feel better if they are not feeling well on the medication that we pick. So let's talk a little bit about moving uh, about new treatments that are on the horizon for CLL. Currently, there are three new treatments that will likely be available for treatment-naive CLL in the coming year. The first is combination of Brutinib and vinoclax. This combination leads to high response rates. However, instead of having side effects from one of the medications, people are generally having side effects from both of the medications. But no new side effects have um, evolved from the combination therapy. There is a trial ongoing where we will be able to see if the combination is better than getting either of these medications one after the other. The next medication is zanubrutinib. Zanubrutinib is also a second-generation inhibitor like acalabrutinib. And like acalabrutinib, it is better tolerated than abrutinib. The only specific side effect for zanubrutinib is a low neutrophil count, which should be monitored, but does not have the headache that is associated with acalabrutinib, and there is no interaction with proton-pump inhibitors like omeprazole or pentoprazole for heartburn. Last is the combination umbralisib plus ubitoximab. Umbralisib is a PI3K inhibitor, a pill that works differently than what is already approved, and ublituximab is an infusion like openituzumab. This combination might be good for patients that can't get a BTK or venetoclax for whatever reason. In terms of new medications that have made a splash in the CL community, CLL community of late, there's Piertabrutinib, formerly known as Loxo-305, and CAR T-cells. Pirtabrutinib is a next-generation ibrutinib and acalabrutinib that binds to their target differently. It was specifically developed to work in patients that develop resistance to either ibrutinib or acalabrutinib. It also had a remarkably good safety profile in the studies that have been published so far. There are two ongoing trials comparing piratabrutinib, one comparing piratabrutinib to abrutinib, and one that combines piratabrutinib with venetoclax. CAR-T, or chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, has been around for the last few years for lymphoma. But in fact, it was first studied in patients with CLL. This treatment uses patients' own T cells and modifies them to attack the CLL. There was a recent news article that many of you saw that documented the outcomes of the first three patients who were first treated with CAR-T. Furthermore, there's a study called TRANSCEND004, which is still ongoing, that showed that CAR-T by itself or paired with Ibrutinib can induce great responses in CLL, even for patients who have received prior BTK uh, Ibrutinib, or venetoclax. CAR-T still comes with a lot of toxicity. Where it will fall in the treatment paradigm is yet to be determined, but it is exciting to see that this treatment might might work for patients with CLL with refractory disease. I want to end by just saying that we have made some great strides in the treatment of CLL in the past few years and decades, and we continue to be excited for what is to come. Thank you for having me, and I'm happy to answer any questions that come up.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kutte. That was really an outstanding presentation and really a wonderful way to start off this program today, really setting the stage for the entire program. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is is Dr. Megan Caitlin Thompson, and Dr. Thompson is fellow in hematology and medical oncology at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Thompson will be addressing the role of clinical trials, how research increases treatment options the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments to communicate with your healthcare team. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Thompson.
3: Thank you so much. Um, And I think Dr. Kite's excellent presentation, talking about some of the new therapies that are being developed for treatment for patients with CLL is a great segue to talk about really the role of clinical trials uh, for patients with CLL. So I think um, it's important first to just take a step back and really um, think about what is a clinical trial. And clinical trials are the means by which scientists and doctors are able to study new treatments or interventions for patients to see how safe they are and or how well tolerated the treatment um, is and how it works uh, to improve outcomes for patients. And there really are many different types of clinical trials. Um, Some clinical trials um, are testing new drugs or combinations of drugs um, and really working to develop new treatments for patients. And you might, I'm just going to talk briefly about the different phases or types of trials that you might hear about. Um, There's phase one trials, which are really um, testing a new drug or combinations of drugs, often in the first, the first time in people um, to determine how safe the drugs are. Can these drugs be given safely to patients? Um, phase two drug trials uh, collect a little bit more information on uh, the side effects of drugs and the safety of the drug and then begin to determine how effective the drug is for, for treating uh, the disease. And then phase three trials um, are the trials, um, that often lead to uh, the approval of, of many of the new treatments um, that, and make them available to, to all patients approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And often the, this type of trial compares a new drug or combinations of drugs to what the standard existing um, treatment would be. And really all these different types of clinical trials highlight um, that there's many different types of trials. And so it's really important, I think, you know, to talk with your physician and your oncologist and your healthcare team about um, if you're considering participation, really the details of the trial and what, what the outcome of the trial is. And there's also a couple of clinical trials which might not focus on treatments for patients. Um, so for example, um, Uh, There are tissue banking or biospecimen collection protocols in which you might uh, provide consent to donate your uh, sample of your blood uh, with your tumor cells or lymph node biopsy or bone marrow biopsy if that's something you get. Um, and uh, these uh, samples are able to be sent to laboratories to uh, really study the biology of CLL, the genetics, and uh, even test new therapies in the lab um, that might work for treatment of CLL. And so I think this is a great way, even for patients with CLL who do not require treatment for their CLL if they are interested to come become involved in clinical research. Um, And then sometimes there's some other non-therapeutic trials where um, you might get, uh, for example, an intervention like patient education educating you about your CLL and measure how that improves, um, you know, your quality of life or understanding of, of your disease. So I think the question comes up a lot, when should you ask your doctor about clinical trials? And I think it's really appropriate to ask your oncologist about clinical trials from your very first visit. You may or may not be a candidate for a clinical trial, but I think it's always really good to know your options, particularly if you're at the point of needing treatment for your CLL. And some clinical trials may only be available at certain medical centers, but there's also many clinical trials that are available at many centers uh, that collaborate across the country. And not everyone uh, needs to participate in clinical trials. Um, I will highlight that there are many great standard uh, therapies, some of which you already heard about in the first session, approved for treatment of CLL. um, And I think it's just a really personalized discussion with with your doctor and your healthcare team. But I think it's important um, to note that clinical research and trials uh, really do increase treatment options for patients. And all of these standard of care treatments that you're hearing about, the drugs like abrutinib, acalabrutinib, and venetoclax, all started as uh, investigational therapies, meaning they were treated, they were tested in in the clinical trial setting first in patients uh, and then went on to be approved as standard therapy. This is how we learn a lot about the side effects uh, of drugs And subsequently how to how to manage those side effects as well as how well the drugs work and the participation of patients and their caregivers in this research really has been vital and led to a positive impact and increased access for patients uh, for new drugs but also for future patients Um, it's a way to really uh, leave a positive impact so um, I think, uh, you know, in, in summary, um, improving outcomes for patients with CL really isn't possible um, without without the participation of patients. And I just uh, like to, to thank all the patients out there, um, you know, past and present who, who participated in clinical research and partnered with their healthcare teams to really advance our understanding of this disease. So, um, in the final portion, I'm just going to talk a little bit about... The increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments to communicate with your healthcare team, and I think um, many of you may have participated in some form or another in telemedicine, whether it be by telephone visits with your healthcare team or physician, uh, video visits, or a combination of the two. And I really do think that telemedicine is here to stay as a part of. Uh, delivering healthcare for patients with CLL. I think it's a very positive development in many ways for patients as well as their families. It offers a flexible option for patients to be evaluated by their uh, doctors and um, other team members without the need to travel to and from the doctor's office. And this can offer some time savings and might reduce a little bit of the caregiver burden if you need someone to you know drive you to appointments um, or even uh, save time to things like time away from, from family and work. And I think it has a particularly helpful role when you're reviewing the results of testing that may have been already performed, for example, blood tests, um, biopsy results, or other scan results that you might get. I think another um, positive development is that telemedicine has helped to um, expand. Um, expert consultation to more patients than previously possible. So, for example, uh, many patients, um, you know, partner with their local oncologist but are able now to get a second opinion in many cases um, uh, regarding their their care, Um, and uh, this can, you know, help identify patients who may or may not be appropriate for clinical trials or other therapies even prior to ever traveling to another medical center. And then again, when COVID-19 cases um, are high, I think it has been helpful to be able to convert, if appropriate, patients to telemedicine visits to limit their potential exposure to COVID-19 and keep them safe. I do think it's important to highlight that there are some circumstances in which I do think that in-person visits are essential, uh, particularly for the physical examination. Um, And I do think it's important to have a physician available who can periodically perform lymph node and spleen physical exam assessments um, and as well as someone available uh, in the case of an acute medical issue that they can examine you in person to, to make a clinical diagnosis. I think at the time of starting treatment, it's also crucial to have an in-person assessment, and I think it's very nice from a patient and physician perspective to establish, uh, you know, a relationship and connection with each other. So in summary, I think the ideal balance is likely a combination of, Telemedicine and in-person visits, and we're really working, learning, and adapting along the way to find that ideal balance for patients with BLL. um So, with that, I'm going to um, end and uh, look forward to your questions.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Thompson. That was really um, outstanding as well, and really covered uh, such important topics. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And. Our next speaker is Dr. Deborah Stevens. Dr. Stevens is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Department of Internal Medicine, Physician Leader, Hematology Clinical Trial Research Group, Huntsman Cancer Institute, University of Utah. And Dr. Stevens will be addressing, communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort and pain, and guided guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague Dr. Stevens. Thank you so much um, for asking
0: me to be here with you today, and um, I appreciate all of you in the audience that are here um, learning about CLL today because I think that's a great way to improve your own care um, is to learn a lot about CLL and what's out there. Um, I have a pretty broad topic to cover, so I'm going to really give the highlights and give you all a chance to ask questions in the question and answer session. Um, But the first topic that I wanted to cover um, are working with your healthcare team um, to improve your quality of life. Uh, Most of you are probably seen um, at an academic center or an oncology center that has multiple different team members. And for example, on my team, I have nurse practitioners, physician assistants, we have pharmacists, sometimes trainees, um, and I have a really excellent nurse in my clinic as well. And um, I wanted to encourage you all to... Um, take advantage of all of these people. They're all experts um, in your disease and can be very helpful to making sure that your quality of life um, is improved. And I, I just wanted to highlight a couple of key questions to ask um, your healthcare team. Um, first of all, um, for those of you who are on um, watch and wait or post remission for therapy, Um, you just wanna make sure you know what symptoms are important to report to your providers, because usually there's some sort of setup where you come in every three months or every six months to see your doctor, but what if something happens in between? So first of all, you need to know what symptoms to report, and I typically um, tell patients to report things like fevers or drenching night sweats that are not in the setting of an infection, um, any rapidly enlarging lumps or bumps, Or, you know, sometimes you just have a question for your oncologist and say, is this something that I should be worried about? So, you need to know how can you contact the office if you have a problem earlier than the scheduled visit. The other thing that is is really important to ask, because most people won't ask unless, um, won't know unless they ask, is um, asking your provider if you have any supportive oncology services. Because most programs have things like exercise programs, massage, acupuncture classes for folks with cancer, support groups, um, uh, counselors, and so there's usually a lot of other um, um, and a, a lot of other parts of your healthcare team that might not be readily visible um, during your clinic visit. And you know, really, I encourage you to use all of those things. I'm gonna move into a time of talking about um, some common side effects and how to manage them. Um, But first of all, kind of still pertaining to quality of life, when you're starting a new treatment, uh, I want you all to ask what side effects you might expect, how long is the treatment, how well do you expect the CLL to respond? And um, importantly, this has already been hit on a little bit, but please ask when you start a new therapy, again, do you have any clinical trials and if you don't, can your doctor refer you to a center that has clinical trials just so you can see what options are available? Uh, because as Dr. Thompson mentioned, you know all of the great treatments we have right now are only possible because of clinical trials. And so you, know, you might be able to have access to the next best thing um, if you participate in a clinical trial. So um, the uh, I'm gonna focus also on the outpatient treatments that Dr. Kate mentioned. Um, First of all is ibrutinib and a few things that you should know about this. um, It's common for patients to have arthritis, joint aches and pains. Um, This typically occurs early in the treatment course um, and I often recommend patients to take Tylenol. Um, If it's more severe, I give a short course of oral steroids. Um, Some patients have luck with magnesium supplementation, uh, but know that most patients after the first month or two on um, ibrutinib typically will um, have a reduction in that side effect. Um, A side effect that doesn't go away and you have a risk of it the whole time you're on ibrutinib is an irregular heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. You might feel palpitations or irregular heartbeats. This is something that really needs to be evaluated by your oncologist, and likely they may call in a cardiologist to help. Um, It's important because you may need a a blood thinner, which can also impact um, your ibrutinib treatment as blood thinners lead to easy bleeding and bruising which ibrutinib also leads to easy bleeding and bruising. Um, And on that note, um, just make sure that you're um, asking your oncologist how long to hold your ibrutinib before and after any um, planned surgical procedures. The other thing, the longer that ibrutinib and these other um, drugs have been around, we have determined that high blood pressure can occur over time. And so, your doctor will monitor you at every clinic visit, but you may have to be started on anti-high blood pressure medications as needed. Um, So, with any of these side effects, it's possible you may need to hold the drug or reduce dose, but I would just encourage you not to do this without your doctor's instructions um, because holding the drug without telling your doctor can um, have a possible concern for creating resistant CLL, Um, and we also have some other options that you could Change to, let's say the ibrutinib is not working out for you, there's another um, really great drug which Dr. Kate mentioned called acalibrutinib. And typically, um, these side effects are less with acalibrutinib than with ibrutinib. One thing that's slightly different is acalibrutinib is given twice a day instead of once a day like ibrutinib is. Um, So that's something to consider um, uh, if considering switching. Um, headaches are very common with acalbertinib and typically happen early in the course of treatment, um, meaning within the first month or two that patients are on this treatment. Tylenol and caffeine are really helpful um, with these and generally, again, um, just know that they do get better with time. Um, also to note with acalbertinib if you have heartburn or reflux, you can't take drugs like omeprazole. These are a class of drugs called proton pump inhibitors because they will block your body's ability to process the acalabrutinib. Now, there is a formulation that the company's working on that might help to address this concern, um, uh, but it's not quite ready for uh, mainstream use yet. The other uh, main class of drugs that uh, Dr. Katay mentioned is venetoclax. Uh, venetoclax is a pill, but it is usually given in combination with an IV treatment called a monoclonal antibody. These are typically obinutuzumab or rituximab. Um, One thing to note about this, um, at the very beginning when you started, this drug is so effective that it can break down your CLL cells and kill them very quickly. And this can cause something called a tumor lysis syndrome. And this is when your uh, CLL cells break down and release products into the bloodstream that are sometimes toxic to the kidneys, like potassium, uric acid, um, and... Uh, can cause irregular heart rhythms, which can be very dangerous. Your risk for this tumor lysis happening is determined by how high your white blood cell count is and how big are your lymph nodes at the time of starting treatment. And so typically to prevent this issue, we have to start with a really low dose of venetoclax and you take that low dose for a week and then um, go up to the next highest dose for a week. And you do that until you're on the maximum dose, which is 400 milligrams, which takes about five weeks to get up. During this time that you're ramping up your dose of venetoclox, you should really increase your fluid intake. Your doctor will likely put you on a medication called allopurinol to reduce the amount of uric acid in your blood. Sometimes if you are considered really high risk by your doctor, you may actually need to be placed in the hospital for monitoring for this tumor lysis. This is typically not a risk after the first month, um, and generally, venetoclax is pretty well tolerated. I do have a lot of patients tell me they get some nausea. Usually, that is best managed by moving your dose of venetoclax to nighttime. Um, and most patients don't have to take extra medication to deal with the nausea associated with it. Sometimes you can also have low blood counts with venetoclax, and your doctor may need to um, monitor for that and give supplements such as, sometimes people give growth factor supplements like Neupogen or NULASTA um, if your white blood cell count becomes low while you're on Venetoclax. But in general, it's a pretty well tolerated medication. So um, I wanna spend just a couple of minutes talking about preparing for telehealth visits. You guys probably are experts by now, but um, if you haven't done a telehealth visit, Um, If I can say anything, I just want you to maximize your time, because one thing um, you might find is, you know, during a regular visit, your doctor is examining you and, and, and doing some other things that take up time, but during a telehealth visit, it's really your opportunity to ask questions, and you might have even more time to ask questions than you would during a regular visit. So, you want to maximize your time, so technology is big. If you're able to practice with the technology that your doctor is using beforehand, maybe with a nurse or a medical assistant um, at the clinic, please do so. If you're not technologically savvy, plan to have a family member or a friend there to help you. And just make sure you log in early to your appointment because there's all sorts of technological things that can go um, wrong or can be difficult and require troubleshooting. And really, you know, we don't want all these technology issues to be using up your time that should be used to take care of you and your health. Um, Another thing about pre-work for the visit, for example, a lot of my patients, if I'm doing a telehealth visit, I will request labs, like a complete blood count prior to the visit. And so, if your doctor requests these labs and you're gonna have them done locally, I would recommend doing them about a week in advance or at least a week in advance, and then call your doctor's office a few days in advance of your appointment to make sure they receive the lab report. Um, this kind of helps to make sure that you get all your questions answered and your doctor has the full information um, needed to have the telehealth visit. Um, and please come prepared with questions. This is a great opportunity for you to ask a lot of questions of your doctor. Um, a couple notes about something called open notes. Um, or, for example, in my uh, medical system at University of Utah, we call the system MyChart. Um, this is essentially your open access to your medical records. Um, how it happens at my center is as soon as any lab that I order is resulted, they get shot directly out to the patient via email. Um, most of the time, I do not, I have not been able to review these labs, and I, I can't make any comments when I don't know they're, um, you know, being shot right out to the patient. And some of these test results are pretty complicated. And so, what I always tell my patient is, you know, don't sit around worrying about something when there may be absolutely no cause for worrying. So, don't hesitate to send a message back through that um, open notes or my chart or call your doctor and tell them you need some additional explanation for the lab that just resulted. Um, it, the one thing about that system, if you're gonna send a message back, most um, offices don't check their messages over the weekend. And so I also recommend if you feel like you're going to be anxious about test results, don't check them at you know, five o'clock on Friday night when it's gonna be hard to um, get a hold with your team to make sure you have any clarifications. So I think this is a great system. It allows patients great access to their medical records, but I, I have seen that it can cause some anxiety when patients don't know really what the test results mean and, they, and their doctor hasn't had a chance to explain them to them. So I think a great thing, but really, if I could say anything, you know, maximize your time on telehealth visits, be prepared with technology, you know, do your pre-work, your laboratories early. And, you know, um, make sure you don't hesitate to reach out to your doctor with questions about what um, test results have come through on your medical record. So I'm going to stop there um, and um, wait for any
1: questions at the end of the program. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stevens. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. A lot of excellent uh, tips and very comprehensive. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Patty Kaufman. Uh, Ms. Ms. Kaufman is a she's a part of the organization today on today's program. Um she is co-founder and communications director of CLL Society Inc. And Ms. Kaufman will be describing the CLL Society's free programs and she'll give you information about how to access the website and other ways to get all the wonderful programs that they offer. It is my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague Ms. Coffin.
4: Thank you so much, Carolyn. Today I would like to touch briefly on 10 free services and or exciting news items from the CLL Society. I will be covering CLL specific support groups, conference coverage, education on demand, test before treat, expert access, COVID-19 action plan, updates on CLL Society's advocacy efforts, CLL Society's funding of preclinical research, then the eminent release, of CLL Society's redesigned website and how you can make Tuesday special. The CLL Society support groups. In isolation, we are having an internal conversation with only one person about our CLL, ourselves. On the other hand, you could join one of CLL Society's 38 CLL-specific support groups across the United States and Canada. These groups are a place of camaraderie and strategy sharing among CLL patients and caregivers under the guidance of CLL Society-trained facilitators. They function as a hub of learning and swift conduits for CLL breaking news and cutting-edge research information. Go to CLLsociety.org and sign up today. Conference coverage, year-round for over a decade, CLL Society's founders, staff, and physician partners have written articles and conducted video interviews covering all of the major hematology conferences to report the latest data on clinical trials. Education on Demand. CLL Society maintains a video archive of its webinars, forums, and virtual community meetings, which you can access on your own schedule. I pulled out a few topics which might interest you. Just Diagnosed, What Do I Need to Know? dealing with the CLL emotional roller coaster, veterans with CLL, how to get the benefits and care you deserve, getting maximum benefit from doctor appointments, learning to decode your blood results, money managers, there is help to manage financial toxicity and giving care to the caregiver. CLL Society's Test Before Treat Program. We know that predictive and prognostic testing are critical before choosing any therapy for your CLL and your life may depend on getting the appropriate testing before treatment as these tests can determine which therapies will work and which therapies will not. We recommend the following action items. Insist that you are told what your IgVH, FISH, and TP53 status are before any therapy. And make sure that your doctor knows that certain findings, such as deletion 17P or TP53 mutation or unmutated IgVH, predict that chemoimmunotherapy will likely not work for you. Please refer to our Test Before Treat one pager print it out, and take it with you to your doctor's appointment whenever a new treatment therapy is being discussed. In short, your therapy must be compatible with what your tests reveal. Expert access. Have you wondered what a CLL expert looking into your medical records might have to say about your specific CLL situation? The CLL Society Expert Access Program gives you an opportunity to have a free 30-minute, face-to-face, HIPAA-compliant video consult in which a CLL expert will review your medical records and answer your questions. To qualify, you need only have a diagnosis of CLL, live in the United States, and not currently be in the care of a CLL expert. Research supports a survival advantage for those cared for by CLL experts. The COVID-19 Action Plan. CLL Society has created and is constantly updating its internationally recognized COVID-19 Action Plan, which details all aspects of the disease, including how you can prevent COVID-19 infections, what supplies you should have in your home, what to do if you test positive for COVID, and most importantly, what your options are for early management immediately after exposure. We provide user-friendly checklists and include links to government sites that help you locate preventative strategies as well as treatments for COVID-19. Updates on CLL advocacy. CLL Society has been working tirelessly behind the scenes to advocate on behalf of CLL patients and other immunocompromised patients patients during the pandemic in an effort to influence the availability of treatment options for CLL patients, CLL Society has become a public voice for the immunocompromised, with members of our team being interviewed in print and multimedia settings about the special needs of the immunocompromised. Introducing CLL Society funding for preclinical research. CLL Society recognizes that there are still significant unmet needs for reconstituting the immune system and therapies that will offer a functional cure. CLL Society is providing funding for preclinical research to help address some of these questions. Next, the imminent release of CLL Society's redesigned website. Stay tuned for the late spring release of CLL Society's new website. And last but not least, please, make Tuesdays special. Come to our website at CLLsociety.org and sign up for our Tuesday weekly newsletter, CLL Society This Week. Thank you for being on this call. It is an important step in your CLL learning, and it's perfectly in step with CLL Society's motto, Smart Patients Get Smart Care.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Patty. That was really outstanding, Ms. Kaufman, that was just an outstanding presentation. And for those of you... I know many of you are aware of the CLL Society and take advantage of the services, but for some of you who have not, it is definitely the go-to place for anyone with CLL. It's just a wonderful organization. Um, Thank you so much. Um, And I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services um, for you to be aware of. Um, So Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we provide a host of services um, to people living with all different types of cancers, including CLL, of course. Um, We offer um, both practical and financial assistance. We have a hope line, so people can call us on the phone and speak with one of our oncology social workers. So when you call, you're immediately connected to an oncology social worker, and usually people bring their concerns or questions up, and the social worker will then help address them and figure out which of our services would best be able to they would best um, be able to utilize in addition to getting their question or concern answered. Um, so what are our services? So we do offer, um, and particularly in this day and age, it's very important, practical and financial assistance and a co-payment assistance program as well. It helps with the costs of treatment, care, uh, transportation for treatment. It's really quite an important program. Um, has been a part of Cancer Care's history, um, the financial assistance part. For its 75 years of existence, it's really very important. We recognize that giving practical assistance is really important. In addition to that, we have, offer online support groups. And people really love online support groups because um, they're not in real time. Like today's program is in real time. They are programs that occur in, um, depending on where you are in the country, um in the United States, you're able to actually, um, you know, post your concern or question um, online or or there's a thread of discussion going on. And our oncology social workers, all of them are moderated by an oncology social worker, so there's a professional piece to each of them. Um, We also do offer case management services. So it means if we don't have the service and you, let's say, need things, let's say it's around food insecurity, you need food, you need help with housing costs, Um, We will virtually connect you to either a local organization, a regional or national or all of them. We will go with you. We won't just give you a list of places to call. We will go with you to those organizations so that you can access that service and help that you need. So that's really a very important piece of what we do. We also do offer, of course, these workshops, and we also, of course, have many publications that you can access as well. Um, But I think um, most importantly, um, we do probably have something for everyone, so do take advantage of our our programs. Um, and with that being said, and also for those of you who are international on the call, you can um, go to our website, post your question, and one of our oncology social workers will try to address it within your country or internationally to help you with your concerns or questions since we have... A significant amount of resources that are available throughout the world that aren't cancer care resources, but that we've collected over many, many years that we can then connect you to to get your get help get you the help that you need. So um, that's that's a very important piece. And you can also email a question you may have or concern, and again, our staff will immediately our oncology social workers will respond to your question and try to assist you with it. Um, so. So with that being said, um, we are now going to. Before I um, move on to Q and A, we're just going to ask you just a few um, questions. Um, And so I'm just going to, um, again, uh, these are questions that we're going to ask you now that the program actually um, you've listened to the program. So now we want to see um, we're going to kind of see um, a little bit of what you've learned on the program today. So again, that will help us to better tailor our programs to meet your needs. So this is the first question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current treatment options for chronic lymphocytic leukemia in the context of COVID-19 and variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of updates and new and emerging treatment approaches for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. What is the highest rating and five, the lowest rating? And the next question is to Matt, as as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how research increases treatment options for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. What is the highest rating and five, the lowest rating? And now just two questions left. Um, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to better use their tips and suggestions to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and quality of life concerns of chronic lymphocytic leukemia CLL. One is the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. And then this is the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I wanna thank everyone for participating in these questions. It'll help us to better plan programs going forth in 2022. And now I'm going to ask um, Grace to bring all of our speakers on board I'm gonna try to take as many of your questions as possible and um, Grace will explain to you how to queue up for questions. I see some of you already posted quite a few questions already. So um, Grace, um, um, if you would explain to people how to queue up for questions. All right, thank you, Dr. Messner.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press
1: the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Excellent, and we have some questions right away from some of our online participants. So I'm going to take the first one. This will be for Dr. Kate. Please talk about Evushield, effectiveness, and availability.
2: Yes, yeah, sure. Um, so to be honest, I'm not sure what the availability is across the United States. So you just have to talk to your provider. Um, I know here at OSU that we do have it available. We give it out in terms of tiers. So we've created tiers of patients that would Most benefit to least benefit. Um, It was studied in patients who were 65 and older or 65 and younger with a uh, comorbidity such as an immunocompromised status, such as CLL. Um, So once again, speak to your provider about if it's available. In terms of um, how well it works, um, it did lead to somewhere around a seventy to eighty uh, percent risk reduction in developing um, COVID symptomatic illness. Um, however, the absolute risk reduction was was pretty small. It was from one percent down to point two percent. So that's only a point eight percent change. But that's that's not totally unsurprising, given that it's pre-exposure prophylaxis. So if it were to be studied in a place where COVID was being was rampant, I would expect those numbers to be a much larger difference. Uh, but given it's very safe profile, we are recommending it to our patients.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um and um the um we have uh thank you so much and there's another question. Um so this is for Dr. um Stevens. From the onset of diagnosis, is there an average length of time during which the disease progresses slowly enough to be simply simply watchful waiting? Yeah, this
0: is an excellent question, and it's a little bit different from person to person. And there are a lot of things that we can use to help you predict how long it might be um, until requiring therapy or developing symptoms. Um, There are laboratory-based tests. Some of Uh, have been mentioned, Um, uh, Patty Kaufman mentioned a couple of the things we want to make sure that you have tested before you do treatment. One is IGHV mutational status. Um, The other thing is a FISH panel for your CLL um, and a mutation of something called TP53. Um, Your doctor can put all of these things together and calculate up your average score and your potential time to next treatment or time to first treatment. However, just keep in mind that we're working with averages, and so you know people will be shorter than that, and some people will be longer than our estimate. And so it's not a perfect science, but there are um, there are lab-based factors and some clinical factors that might help your doctor figure it out um, uh, as close as they can.
1: Excellent. And I've actually been asked to announce that actually we had many more people on the program. We must have been less than registrations because I. I give the number that we had um last night but actually it turns out that there are about 341 people on the call today so this is a very large call today um and I want to thank um probably the C O L society for really helping to promote this program tremendously um so um so now I just want to move on to one last question um uh for Dr. uh Thompson um there is a question about the um the vaccines um actually in terms of the um Covid vaccines, um, so there was a discussion of having three or four. And just want to clarify if they've had the two vaccines and a booster from either Moderna or Pfizer, do they need to get a fourth vaccine as well? If you just comment on that.
3: Absolutely, that's a great question, and I think you know things have changed um, over as uh, you know more uh, information and guidelines have developed. So. For patients with CLL, uh, because this is a, you know, cancer of your immune cells, you are considered immunocompromised, you know, even if you haven't required treatment yet. So the recommendation um, by the CDC for the mRNA vaccines, either a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, uh, would be to get really three vaccines as part of the primary series. So many patients started off by getting the two vaccines and then a booster. Um, Actually, now we're considering the first three vaccines as primary vaccines, and then a fourth dose of the mRNA vaccine, either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Um, uh, Recently, the CDC has said that that can um, occur three months following the third vaccine so we are recommending uh for for our patients to get four total um uh, uh doses of the mRNA vaccine at this time and i'd say these uh guidelines are are changing um uh you know as time goes on and more information um is is collected and data is collected so just check in at your appointments with your with your team about the recommendations
1: Excellent. um and then just um, one more question for Dr. Kote, Please talk about Evushield effectiveness and availability.
2: I think I already answered that question before. Do you want me to state what I said before yes, again?
1: If you could, yes, please, thank you. Sure.
2: Yeah, so uh, once again, so Evushield's availability really depends on where you live and um, how many doses your local provider has received. Um, so tuck in uh, with your local provider, find out if it's available at your at w- w- where you're located. I know at the Ohio State University, it is available, especially for our patients with CLL. Um, it's given um, – we 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 create these tiers uh, from Tier 1 to Tier 5 based on who we believed would most benefit, but it doesn't matter which tier you're in at this point. Anyone can get it who's in within these tiers. So it's approved for uh, patients who are above 65 and below 65 plus a comorbidity, which includes CLL. Um, so our CLL patients are available to get it. Um, so I had briefly mentioned um, the efficacy of FU-Shield. Um The it it decreased uh, the risk of getting symptomatic COVID by somewhere between 70 to 80 percent, but the actual absolute risk was only 1 percent to 0.2 percent. So it's a really low amount of risk that the patients who were on the trial actually experienced. So we believe that um, if it was studied in a population where COVID was spreading really fast, you'd probably see larger differences um, in the actual absolute risk of the patients who received the other So it, it, it does work. Um, it leads to a decrease in between 70 to 8 in, percent in, in terms of your risk of getting symptomatic COVID. Um, and we are recommending it to our patients with CLL, given that it's a really safe drug.
1: Thank you so much. I I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. Um, We could go on for another hour at least, but we have said this would be an hour program. We've already gone over a little bit, so I just want to be sure that I'm respectful of everyone's time here. Um, I I just want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank our participants for your really great questions um, on this call today. Um, It's been a really – although we've done this program before, this has really been outstanding in terms of um, both – the participant questions and our speakers' response and our, our speakers' presentations as well. So we do have another program that's coming up next week, um, next Thursday. So um, and there will be additional information for you to participate in. So please, if you haven't signed up for that, please do. Um, also, someone did ask um, about whether this program is um, will become will be recorded, and it is being recorded, and it means that you will be able to listen to it probably by tomorrow. It should be available for you to listen to it. And so please um, feel free to actually, um, um, you know, um, understand that. And it will be up for at least a year. So you'll be able to listen to the program for at least one year. Um, uh, uh, and if not, it's not longer than that. Um, and also, please everyone remember that today's program is um, is live as of today's date. So all the information that you've learned today is appropriate for March seventeenth, 2022. Because remember, this a lot of things are evolving, and so you need to understand that things can change, and so you need to always check with your healthcare team. And I want to get back to that. Some of you were able to ask a question. Some of you have a question yet to ask, and some of you actually um, may have a question that you haven't asked yet, but you want to ask. So for all of you, we hope that you've learned information on the program today that you can take back to your healthcare team, and that you can ask more informed questions of your healthcare team. That's really very important. Um, that you use that information, but your healthcare team really know you the best. They know everything about you. And so it's really important um that um you know that um you know it's really very important that that you all utilize your healthcare team because they can really help you with any of questions that you may have or that you even ask during the program today that you can get additional information that applies to you. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, and um, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Remember, none of you are alone. You now have the CLL Society to call. You can call Cancer Care, and we'll give you, um, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey after the program. And in that Survey Monkey, there will be another, another evaluation where you can write your comments, but you'll also be getting um, more resources um, as well um, that you can utilize. So you don't have to feel that you're only alone. You have your healthcare team. You have the CLL Society, you have Cancer Care, and there are many other organizations out there to help you. And be sure you go to well-respected and well-researched organizations, and those are the ones that we've listed on the materials that we send to you. Okay, thank you all and have a great day.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.